Hello, and welcome to another episode of the SkyTap Podcast. My name is Noel Wurst. I'm SkyTap's Corporate Communications Manager and Content Marketer, as well as the host of this show. And I want to apologize for the time it's taken to put out a new episode. I had some major events over the summer. I had a new baby boy be born, and I was out with him for a little while. And some of our guests on today's show were traveling the globe, so it took a little bit of a coordination, but we are really excited about this week's episode. Uh, we are always looking forward to the annual State of DevOps report that Puppet puts out every year. And after reading this year's, uh, uh, reached out to them to see if they would be interested in discussing some of the points that some of us at SkyTap found really interesting and wanted to know more about. And we were thrilled to get one of the report's authors, as well as Puppet's CIO and VP of Operations, Nigel Kirsten, uh, to be on the show this week. Nigel was really excited about it. And we also brought in Anders Walgren, the CTO at Electric Cloud, uh, knowing that they are also large in the DevOps space and big fans of the report as well. So this week's episode, I acted as moderator for Nigel, Anders, and also brought along our own Director of Product Management, Dan Jones. And each of us kind of picked out a handful of the points that really stood out to us uh, that we could ask Nigel about and then just kind of discuss our own experiences with in the uh, in this industry. So going to jump go ahead and jump right into the episode. This week's episode ran a little bit longer because there was so much to talk about. So be sure and stick around. Hope you enjoy everything. Glad to be back, and we promise to have more episodes coming out soon. This is the SkyTap Podcast. So I just introduced everybody a second ago separately, but if I could get everyone just to kind of say your name and title and where you're from, just so our listeners are aware or are, are clear on who is speaking as they're listening to the, uh, to the podcast today, this is, uh, I'll go ahead and start. Uh, my name is Noel Wurst, and I am the Corporate Communications Manager and Content Marketer here at SkyTap. Uh, Nigel, would you like to go next? Sure. My name is Nigel Kirsten, and I'm CIO, VP of Operations here at Puppet. And I've been Puppet about six years now in a variety of different roles, but been working heavily on the DevOps report that we'll be discussing today. Uh, Anders? Sure. I'm uh, Anders Walgren, uh, CTO at Electric Cloud. I've uh, been with the company for uh, almost 12 years now, and uh, we work with uh, uh, all of our customers, uh, largely large enterprise-type uh, customers, uh, helping them with their uh, DevOps tooling and uh, processes and a uh, little bit of culture as well. And I'm Dan Jones. I'm Director of Product Management at SkyTap. Been here for a little over a year. I focus on application modernization, so helping our customers take their traditional apps and introduce new types of either cloud technologies or DevOps and DevOps tooling principles. And prior to that, I did a tour of duty at a large retailer in the Seattle area. Awesome. Thank you very much, everybody. So, Nigel, we'll let you uh, kick it off. Uh, just uh, we're talking about Puppet's 2016 State of DevOps report. Maybe uh, just for anyone who is a little kind of unfamiliar with the report, um, uh, if you want to give a little bit of a background as to kind of how it came to be and how you uh, how you gather the feedback um, for that, and just just some more information about the uh, report in general. 
Sure. So this is the fifth year that we've run the report, and what we do is we survey a whole bunch of technical professionals. We're at about 25,000 total over the five years, and we had nearly 5,000 respondents this year. So we essentially ask about a whole bunch of different practices and a whole bunch of different performance measures. So we're asking people, you know, are you using continuous delivery? Are you using infrastructure as code automation? Are you doing testing automatically in pipelines? But we're also asking questions about mean time between failures, how much time you spend doing planned versus unplanned work, and all those sorts of characteristics. So we've been, this has been evolving for quite a few years now. I think when we first started five years ago, it wasn't even clear DevOps was going to be more than a flash in the pan, which it's definitely turned out to be a much, much bigger deal, I think, than any of us had really, in, really envisaged, particularly in the enterprise environment. So the general arc we've seen over the last five years has been those early adopters who really adopted these practices before many of the other enterprises are really starting to pull away from the pack in terms of performance. So when we do the statistical analysis on the surveys, we end up doing a me using a method called cluster analysis. So we're looking at the kinds of practices and behaviors companies use, as well as the outcomes. And there's a really, really tight correlation in the high-performing IT cluster between the practices they embody and just this huge orders of magnitude better performance in terms of actual outcomes. So one thing I really wanted to make clear is that we were a vendor in this space, Puppet, but one of the reasons we want to make sure this isn't just another vendor report is so we partner with DevOps Research and Assessment, DORA. Um, in previous years, they've been known as IT Revolution, the people who published the Phoenix Project, which many of you may have read. And the individuals we've been working with pretty closely there are Gene Kim, who is the ex-CTO of Tripwire and has written a bunch of really great books around like the Phoenix Project and the Visible Ops Handbook. Jez Humble, who you may know from his Continuous Delivery Lean Enterprise books and the upcoming, which is a really great read, I've got a preview copy of the DevOps Handbook, as well as Nicole Forsgren, who's an ex-academic and an IT impact expert and researcher around IT performance, knowledge management, and DevOps practices. So I think we've got some really, really great topics that we've managed to uncover in the course of the survey of the last couple of years and looking forward to the rest of the conversation as we dive into them. That's great. Uh, yeah, and so like, like you mentioned, the, um, the, some of the results and the impacts of DevOps that you share there in the report definitely back up that, that claim that uh, those who have, have embraced it are really starting to pull away from the pack. Um, we've each got a couple of points from the report that stood out most to us, um, but anyone here on the uh, on the podcast today, feel free to, to chime in if there's anything else you had to say uh, uh, about each point. So um, one thing that stood out to me, like I was just discussing, that sometimes the, the scale of the numbers and the findings that you have in there, not that they're hard to believe, it's just hard to imagine what that kind of growth actually looks like. One, one of the numbers in there that stood out to me was... Uh, uh, two thousand five hundred and fifty-five percent shorter lead times. You know, I, I know lead times a lot of times get a uh, touted as maybe the most important um, metric to look at in DevOps. So I was curious, Nigel, if you could describe what two thousand five hundred and fifty-five percent even looks like. And yeah, no, it's pretty astounding, is. isn't it? It is. Um, so I think what we're talking about here is when people actually adopt automation and appropriate organizational structure and processes internally to work with that automation. 
So we see, you know, and I'm sure you see this a lot of with your enterprise customers as well, people have awfully manual processes in this space. Just things as simple as provisioning a new machine can involve, you know, putting in a ticket to the hypervisor team and then putting in another ticket to the storage team and then putting another ticket into the network team to get an IP address allocated. Then someone realizes that the firewall needs to be opened up for that particular service. And all of these things have a really huge lag time because they're, they involve manual work. But once you actually adopt, you know, continuous delivery practices, infrastructure as code, automated testing, all of these things, people move from lead times of, you know, nine months to being able to do things within a couple of hours. And that ends up being really transformative for the business. Not only is that just means that you're getting work done faster, but it means that you're actually able to respond far more quickly. And I think we see this particularly in one of the findings that came out of the report about high-performing IT organizations are spending 50% less time remediating security incidents. And that's a really huge sort of top-level metric for your CIO or CISO or whatever to deal with. But I'd actually say that I think the actual impact is significantly higher than that because my gut feeling is that those people who are working in an incredibly manual way just aren't actually addressing most of those security issues. They're running old, unpatched bits of software because the process to actually update that software and roll it out and test it is just so unfathomably manual that people aren't getting around to doing it. Whereas those people who have a highly automated pipeline can go, well, let's roll out this change. We have a testing environment that we know matches production. We can actually investigate that, see how well it works, and then we're kind of done. So I think that general being able to respond in a significantly more agile way just has a really huge transformative impact across the business. But I think it also uncovers some of the things that companies simply aren't doing at the moment. Or even worse, you know, that old term that many of us in IT end up loathing in many ways of shadow IT. But if your IT services organization isn't allowing your development teams, your digital teams, your marketing teams to actually work quickly at the speed they need to, they're going to go around you and find another way. I feel like every day I'm seeing another security company pop out there, which is essentially offering a promise around we we can find all of the infrastructure out there on the cloud that your IT department doesn't know about. And that's a real problem for many businesses. Absolutely. Dan or Anders, did either of y'all have anything uh, as far as some of the, the magnitude of the DevOps impact that's discussed there in the report? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, I think it's really kind of interesting too that, um, you know, Nigel, you said, you know, we, we can respond in an agile way. And I absolutely agree with that. But I think it even goes a little bit sort of deeper psychologically than that, which is, you know, teams that have a robust automated software pipeline, you can operate with confidence. You know, you, you, you can try things, you can experiment, you can work fast, because you know that if you break something, it's going to get caught in a pipeline. Um, and, and, and that's a fundamentally different mindset that people have. And it, it does take away uh, a good chunk of the fear that people have when, you know, kind of faced with this, you know, faced with a situation of, you know, okay, we have an open SSL uh, security issue. We need to go patch, you know, hundreds or thousands of systems. Um, gosh, how are we going to do that without screwing up? Um, you know, that's where things grind to a halt with sort of more traditional uh, type organizations. And then I think, you know, and I think I agree, I think, you know, uh, low performers are just not addressing these issues at all. So in some sense, the, the percentages are infinite uh, in, in, in some of these uh, measurements. Uh, but uh, but I, I think it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's almost understating it to say that we're, we're, we're able to be agile, we're able to be human, you know, we're able to be, you know, more confident and, and get more things done, which is, which is pretty spectacular. And we see that in, you know, 
Fortune 20 banks, in, in large enterprises, even in government institutions and aerospace institutions, you know, places where you would you know, expect to see lots of you know, slow-moving, cautious uh, types of uh, behavior. We're, we're seeing much more uh, you know, sort of rational, fast behavior with, uh, with these methodologies, which is, which is really fascinating and, and very cool. Yeah, you mentioned, Anders, the rework and catching things earlier in the cycle. Pretty much every software shop I've worked in, whether it was enterprise IT or at an ISV, the topic of sustained engineering or break-fix work versus the time you spent on new work is a topic of discussion. And what are the right percentages? The report shows pretty clearly that the high performers are spending far less percentage of their time on rework than the medium performers and the low performers. Well, that's going to lead to employee satisfaction, higher employee satisfaction. It's a, it's a creative field that we work in, and people want to be creative and do high-value-add activities, not run around fighting fires or picking up after others. And I think that, that high employee satisfaction and getting to do um, new bits of work and be creative creates a great environment for those people, and then it starts to attract new talent to the organization. Um, greatness attracts greatness. People want to be part of something fun um, and something meaningful and good. I really like that point about it not just being about agility, but about removing fear in many ways, because I think that also helps you onboard new staff. It lets you hire people and make them more productive more quickly, and it also lets you level up your junior staff significantly more. I think, uh, particularly in the 90s, a lot of the IT shops I worked in, there's a relatively long apprenticeship you do as a sysadmin before people let you touch production, because there was just so much fear around, well, what happens if you type the wrong thing in? Absolutely That's actually going to affect the running service. And I think the more we can do in our industry of leveling up our junior people, and you know, I think we're all struggling with how to improve diversity and stop having such a monoculture in the tech industry, the more we can enable new people to enter the industry, pick up skills quickly, operate with confidence, and actually produce, you know, for want of a better term, business value for the company, the better we all are. We need more diverse voices in this industry. Yeah, that was the, uh, the next point I was going to get to was that, you know, a lot of times people expect metrics to be around things like time to market and defect resolution and uh, um, uh, the shorter lead times. But there's a whole set of, you know, more uh, creative metrics around employee loyalty, you know, job satisfaction, retention, uh, talent, all that kind of stuff that uh, that's definitely there in the report as well. Um, uh, Anders, I know you mentioned that you uh, do some stuff with, uh, with culture there at, uh, at Electric Cloud. I would love to get kind of your thoughts on on how DevOps enables some of those things. Yeah, we're you know it's interesting because you know I mean we're we're a tools vendor that that's what we do. Um, you know we sort of all know that you can't uh, you can't buy DevOps in a box. Um, you know if you could I would certainly sell it to you, but you're gonna you're gonna fail spectacularly if you don't pay attention to uh, you know the culture and and all of those those other things. And I you know I think one of the things that we're we're seeing quite often is is there really is you know correlation with employee churn. Um, you know, it's 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 not just about you know keeping the existing people happy. It's about preventing them from walking out the door. Um, you know, we we work with a very large trading firm. Um, I, I can't use company names, unfortunately, but but a very large trading firm that we've all heard about. Um, and you know, they've they've gone from um, spending you know the entire weekends doing deployments uh, to where deployments are now sort of a forty-five to sixty-second process. And I'll never forget the first time we demoed that. 
for for the for the uh, sort of the the managers in, in the team that we're, we were working with, and and kind of did a deployment, and they were kind of sitting there, and and somebody said, well, when does it start? And we said, no, no, it's done, it's finished. Do you want to see it again? Um, it, it was so fast they couldn't you know sort of conceive that it could that it could operate that quickly, um, and and the, and all of a sudden the whole room sort of erupted in, okay, well, if we can do deployments that fast, that means we can also, you know, dot, 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 dot. Now, all of a sudden, all of that energy and time and, 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 and sort of stuff that was, that was hung up on, oh my God, it's going to be another weekend of hell. Everybody's going to be on a conference call till the early wee morning hours and all of that kind of stuff turned into, okay, now what can we take that time away and, and, and do useful things with? Now, obviously on the weekend, it's be home with the family, but, but even during the week, um, all of a sudden, you're you're kind of freed up to do to do lots of things, and then, you know, it, it's a it's a big deal for for these companies, especially if you're, you know, especially if you have to do uh, you know kind of trading hours and and those kinds of things where you kind of by definition are only going to do deployments uh, during during off hours. That's a huge uh, you know kind of load for for people to uh, to no longer have to to bear the burden of, um, and 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 it's so it's, so for us it's kind of really interesting to see the kind of the how technology and culture impact each other because you, you you definitely can't you know you sort of need all three legs of the stool you know you need people process and technology um, but 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 improving one leg of the stool actually helps you improve the others um, so so getting getting some good technology in there all of a sudden frees you up to to think to breathe you know to kind of do all kinds of other things and that has an improvement on morale and has an improvement on you know how many people are going to walk out the door because they're pissed off at how you do things and, and all of those kinds of things. So it's so it's really been interesting for us to see not just the the kind of the individual uh, ways that that the legs of the stool, if you will, work work uh, you know individually, but also how they impact each other uh, and and how you you get sort of a positive feedback loop once you start to really strengthen uh, the the core aspects of of, of one uh, piece of the puzzle and and how it impacts you know everything else. It's 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 really really fascinating. I think you've hit something really, really interesting there, which I've seen a lot in the financial services industry as well, which is those technology improvements do lead to process improvements and people improvements. And the really concrete examples I can think of are that people who are sort of moving to the next level in automation, where they're not just automating the infrastructure layer, but they're automating the deployment of applications on that infrastructure layer and using a combined infrastructure as code approach to manage both of those things, however they're doing it. There's often a lot of pushback internally where people are like, well, you know, we develop apps in 55 different ways because I think many people who don't work inside those organizations and verticals don't really realize just how many software developers the large banks have and how many software apps they actually run. Absolutely. Like, yeah. There's like tens of thousands of them. Yeah, I mean, with the, the Fortune 20 bank that we're working with is, is over 6,000 applications in, in just this area of the bank that we're working with and something like 145,000 kind of endpoints out in, in the data center or in the cloud, uh, the scale at which these guys operate, and obviously other than financial companies operate at that scale as well. But the, but the key point being, I think, the, the number of different applications that you have to deal with and the different tool chains and technology stacks, and it's, it's kind of bewildering for these people to kind of just, where do we start? You know, how do we onboard all of these things? Um, totally. So it's, it's, yeah, it's a lot, a lot of scale to deal with. Yeah, but I think once you put in those technology layers that let people get those incredibly dramatic effects, like the deployment you were just talking about, 
people can't go on board. They're like, well, you know, I will rewrite those 20 simple applications that are all running differently. And previously, I wouldn't have bothered. I would have said, no, that's just busy work. Why rewrite things that are already working? But once they see these incredible gains in deployment speed and reliability, people just start doing it. And so I think the technology improvements lead to process improvements, lead to consistency, which ultimately leads to higher engagement because they're getting to do more interesting work during those limited time periods. Yeah, I mean, you know, pe- people are incredibly rational for the most point. And um, <laughs> if, if you give them painful things to do, they'll do them, but they won't be happy about it. Um, if you give them, you know, less painful things to do, then, yeah, they'll, they'll definitely, uh, you know, exert more energy in, in favor of the cause, uh, so to speak. So very, very true. Well, and I think getting to that solid foundation of process and tools that support the process is just essential for any team. When I started my career, I was a COBOL programmer on a mainframe working on a payroll system. And we would release new code twice a month and we would run payroll twice a month. And after about my first couple of months there, I I started asking like, so when do we run payroll? Because the demeanor of the department never changed. Everybody was calm. Everybody was relaxed. We were running payroll for 80,000 employees in the U.S. And this was a company where, full of engineers that they would, they would call up if their paycheck was a penny off. So <laughs> the, the, the margin of error is pretty low there. But there were solid processes and solid tooling in place to support the team to do their job. And as a result, we could all relax. Fast forward 22 years and... Uh, the next, my next tour of duty in enterprise IT, uh, people were so fearful of deploying anything into production. There were, throughout the calendar year, multiple dates of freeze times where there was no changes to even test environments for fear that a change to a test environment could somehow break a production environment. And the complexity is, is tremendous from then to now, but there weren't the processes and the tooling in place to support that complexity. And I think that fear has all sorts of flow-on effects, like, um, you know, not to pick on Red Hat at all, they're, you know, serving their market really well, or even Microsoft, but the big enterprise OS vendors end up having to have these huge extended support cycles where they're saying, well, you can pay a bit more and you can still keep running Enterprise 4 for another four or five years. And that just means Red Hat's not spending that effort on innovation and all of the vendors who are having to support software are having to make sure they support older OSs. So the more that sort of the cycle time manages to speed up, it's, it really is a rising tide that lifts everyone. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you, it, it's amazing how much more productive you can be if you're, if you're not tasked with doing something that a computer can do for you and much better and much faster. You know, I mean, it, it seems like an obvious thing to say, but uh, so much of the industry really spends its time doing stuff that, that doesn't need a human, uh, which isn't to say that you should, you know, go fire all the humans. Uh, you, you should just find more valuable things for them to do. Um, so it's, it's exciting to see when that happens. It's, it's, it, it's really kind of satisfying, um, you, know, I, you know, working in software, even working in sort of DevOps type software. Yeah, it's, you know, we're not really saving the world here. You know, we're not, we're not you know, doctors without borders or anything like that. But, uh, you know, to see a, an organization's kind of uh, organizational light bulb uh, you know, uh, go on above their head is, is pretty, pretty cool to see. Yeah, this kind of gets into the next, the next note I had here was um, where the report talks about uh, unplanned work and what DevOps impact is on that. And we kind of discussed this in uh, our kind of briefing with each other before this uh, recording, but how widespread unplanned work can become and that when 
you know, a, an organization who's uh, developing software is, is, is all of a sudden stuck doing unplanned work and it's delaying a future release or a support request or, or uh, any kind of new features being delivered, it really all of a sudden starts to create unplanned work for your customers as well. It's, it's, it's impacting not just within your walls, uh, but it's creating work for your customers who are now unable to do their job because they're waiting on you because you're doing unplanned work. Yeah, totally. So that was one of the key metrics we really wanted to measure because we wanted to try and work out, you know, how how deliberate were people being, and was there actually a huge difference between people in DevOps environments versus you know pre DevOps? I guess to be somewhat optimistic about it, and what were their ratios of unplanned work like? But I think this is you know a reality. The more time you can spend actually doing planned work, they're the features that you're shipping. They're the things that are again actually creating business value. It's the unplanned work, and there's always a certain amount of unplanned work in our space. You know, we're not going to head towards some nirvana where we no longer have Heartbleed or these giant industry-wide vulnerabilities hitting all of us. The perfect but, code flows from my fingers. Yeah, like, but you want you you just want to minimize that stuff because the planned work is where you get to actually address technical debt, and unplanned work is often where you create it. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting too because uh, you know traditionally when we talk DevOps and continuous delivery and and, and those types of things, a, a, a large majority of the time we're, we're addressing you know web companies, web properties, um, but we're seeing you know a lot of our a lot of our uh, customers are. You know, embedded. They're they're even you know uh, on-premise type applications and things like that, as well as obviously large uh, web web customers as well. But th this is starting to take root even in the non uh, non web uh, type companies. You know, aerospace, defense, uh, th those kinds of things. And it's it's really kind of interesting to to uh, uh, to see how they uh, kind of look at the way that they do software and and the amount of uh, planned unplanned work that they actually have to deal with right they they have months worth of, of time in their in their development processes that are just reserved for okay this is when the shit hits the fan this is when we're gonna have to you know fix all the the uh, the unknown problems um, and and they're starting to get to the point now where obviously they realize how screwed up that is and that has to get fixed and and are willing to you know make a lot of changes for that which in those kinds of very you know traditionally slow-moving conservative type environments um, that that's you know that that's a in, in some ways, to me, a real hallmark of, of the success of, of uh, the movement, uh, as it were. Dan, I wanted to ask you about something. One of the, the things that you noticed in the report that stood out to you was, was that it really drove home the importance of, of smaller batch sizes and deployments, um, you know, whether it's related to uh, less unplanned work or less defects or, or whatever the benefits are. I was curious as to, to what stood out to that about you, whether it was your own experience um, or basically what validated that uh, to you? Well, what I always used to get hit up from, from business users when we would talk about projects and when we could deliver certain functionality is they would use their phone as an example. And they'd say, well, look, the apps on my phone update almost every day. So these companies seem to be able to get functionality into my hands so quickly. You guys are right here with me, and I'm asking for this little thing. Why does it take so long? And and I think it was the the fixed cost to move a an an idea through the pipeline into implementation was just so high. And as I mentioned before, there was a lot of fear in making those changes. Um, 
once you start, once you can break through that fear and um, you can start putting the tooling and the processes in place and build that confidence, I mean, we see from the survey that the high performers are deploying more frequently. The lead time to get changes deployed is much shorter. That means there's going to be fewer people involved, so it's going to cost less. Um, when something goes wrong, it's, it's never an if. Things are going to go wrong. But the time to recover is so much shorter. And, and actually, the overall change failure state, we see that much, much lower on the high performers than the medium and low performers in IT. So the, the shops, the high performers, they can probably satisfy their, their internal customers you know, who are expecting that instant gratification from, I have this idea, let me see it expressed in the, in the application that I'm using on a daily basis. Um, that leads to greater satisfaction uh, from the external consumers of IT and within IT. And, it, and it's all based, I think, on smaller batch sizes. I don't think you can overemphasize just the huge impact that the phone OSs that we all deal with now and consumer SaaS just had on the pressure for developers and operations people because suddenly everyone's expectation was like, this is ridiculous. I can go to a website, I can put in my credit card, I can click a few buttons and I get a thing. Why is enterprise IT so bad compared to this? Why does my phone work like this? Like, I really think that was a really huge pressure for a lot of these changes. It's, it's sort of the ultimate consumerization of IT. Um, you, know, <laughs> I, I, you know, aside from bring your own device and all of that kind of stuff, it's just, yeah, we've, we've got expectations now. Um, you know, why do we suck so much more than, you know, these guys? Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, benchmarking is always good. Um, and, and it's always good when you, you know, when the bar starts to get raised. Um, that's, it's, it's, a, it's a really great thing to see. One thing yeah. I wanted to touch on with the small batches really quickly was a really great finding from last year's DevOps report, which showed that we... You can't just have top-down support from your executives and you can't just have a grassroots movement doing implementing DevOps practices, but that middle managers turn out to be really, really key to this process. And because they're, they're the ones who are implementing, they're essentially turning strategy into tactics and letting tactical results feed back into strategy. And if they're not on board, you can't actually get this done. And the most visceral example I'd say of that is that middle managers really need to embrace failure in a different way because when you're working in small batches, you're also going to fail more frequently, but the cost of failure is so much lower that overall velocity and progress is much, much higher. So if you're implementing a highly automated system, moving in small batches, yet your middle managers are still haranguing individuals for going, this is no good, one out of 10 changes are failing, you need to push that culture all the way through the management layer. Yeah, you almost have to change the math a little bit, you know, because you, you, you have to think not in terms of just raw failure rate, but you have to think in terms of uh, attempts not made. Right. Yep. I, I didn't even try to do this because I didn't want to fail. I didn't want to screw up. But, you know, that should count as a failure, you know, not not as a, you know, not counted thing. And I think if you were to do that sort of uh, kind of accounting magic, uh, most uh, organizations failure rates would kind of go way up and, and you would you would stand out even more. Uh, if you're an organization that encourages experimentation and, and failing uh, rapidly and, and those types of things. I think this well, is what makes all of the metrics quite astounding in that as we've already talked about several instances where we're, we're talking about a dark matter of unobserved <laughs> made and incidents not resolved. <laughs> yeah. Well, here's one other dimension of small batch sizes, and, and the report doesn't measure this, but having led large and small teams, um, I got to believe that this comes into play, and that's performance review time. So 
I would work on projects that would be a year or two years in nature. And of course, it never lined up with when my performance review was happening. So my review was always happening mid-flight. Well, it's really hard to for a manager to say, you know, look at all the great stuff you've done when it's still, you know, on the drawing board. You move to smaller batch sizes and stuff is moving through that pipeline and the conversation changes and it's like, look, here's the tangible business value that I delivered, you know, in this period. It was these 83 different changes. Sure, eight of them didn't go well, but we learned a lot and made those corrections for the last nine of them. That's a very productive performance review discussion, and there should be incentives and uh, bonuses tied to that sort of thing. That's a fantastic point. That's great. That really is. Well, we have got time for, for one more, uh, and, and originally I had planned this just for, uh, for Nigel, but I'm curious to get uh, your takes on it as well, Anders and Dan. Um, what, what do you do with, uh, with the report now or, or the information that you found in there? Like, I was curious as to, to what each of you kind of do with the information. You know, obviously, you know, everyone has kind of uh, admitted that we're all vendors, um, so you know, using it to further our, our own cause is one thing, but what kinds of things does it make you think about, uh, you know, is it, is it sharing the information? Is it, is, it, um, you know, is it trying new things? Is it being less afraid to try new things, not being afraid to fail, things like that? What kind of uh, plans do, do each of you have when you learn something new or a new way to measure the ROI of, uh, of DevOps? What, what kind of things do, does it um, kind of bring to mind? Nigel, I'll let you start. Sure. So, you know, as I said, you know, a lot, a lot of this, to be honest, you know, is a part about making sure that Puppet stays as a prominent voice in right. this whole movement. But I think there's a bunch of really pragmatic, useful things for the whole industry. One that I actually think is really easy to discount is that enterprise DevOps was almost a term that was mocked early in the, in the early days. And I think particularly we'd see people make jokes about, you know, you can't do DevOps on mainframes. Mm. You can't do DevOps on ERP systems. And it turns out none of those things are true. And the DevOps handbook I mentioned earlier like, has a whole bunch of really great case studies around that. One of the things I'm most proud of with the report, though, and I've heard this a bunch of times from practitioners, is because we end up being focused on the value to the whole business and we connect that with the actual practices people are doing using at the grassroots, it gives sysadmins, who aren't always the most people-oriented people in the world, a way to engage with their management chain and go, this is why we should do these sorts of things. And it gives them some of the language and some of the outcomes and goals to be able to actually engage with their management and convince them to change things, to convince them to try how things should work. <clears throat> but also gives them an idea of what should they be measuring in order to build those cases internally. And I think this is one of the big cultural changes the DevOps movement has pushed is that operations people can't just be, you know, the IT cost center sitting in the basement, you know, constantly spending money and never actually being recognized for delivering any value. So just that it's a point of interaction, I think, between individual practitioners and managers for practitioners who haven't generally known how to speak to their C-suite. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's, it's amazing um, kind of ammunition in, in those kinds of scenarios. And, and I mean, one of the things I do all the time is, is point people to the report and hit them over the head with the numbers, right? I mean, and, and, and the, the sheer quantity of data and, and the quality of that data as well in, in the report, you know, grows and grows and grows. And, and it becomes pretty difficult to argue kind of ad hoc against that kind of data. Um, and, and I think the other thing that, that I do often too is, look, People are doing this successfully. You know, it, it, it really sort of uh, 
uh, gives people a little bit of hope, uh, if you will, that, look, we can change, we can do things differently. There are companies out there, organizations out there that are doing these things differently, doing it better, having better outcomes, having happier customers, having happier uh, employees. And, and it's really a, a question of uh, apply a little bit of the scientific method to how we're, you know, doing business. You know, it's not all, you know, kind of, you know, Sloan School of Management, HBR, uh, you know, kind of uh, uh, top-down management kind of stuff. It, it really is a place for experimentation and, uh, you know, figuring out key metrics and how they matter and how to really measure them and how to really act on them, uh, all, all those kinds of things. I, I think it's a good kind of hopeful message to, to throw into people's face. And if they don't respond to that, then you flip it on its side and say, look, your competitors are doing it and you're going to be out of business if you don't. And, and the numbers kind of say that too. The, the, the orders of magnitude of difference are, are fairly uh, substantial. Uh, so you, you kind of want to be on one side of that equation, not the other side of the equation, uh, if, you're, if you're rational anyway. Well, it always seemed to be the case, like I've lived through the Rational Unified process and CMM and Agile and Scrum and all those other things. And to be able to benchmark your team against others was always really hard. The data was never readily available or it wasn't done scientifically. And I think the consulting firms made a killing off of this because, oh, you'd hire, you'd hire whoever to come in. And, well, we've surveyed, you know, a hundred different shops using the Rational Unified process. And so we'll measure you and tell you how you're doing versus those other shops. Well, who has the time and money to do that? What the report gives us is those benchmarks. And it also provides that sort of justification for those uh, seedlings in the organization that, that are fed up and they want to try something new. And they can take this data to their leaders and start driving change. And to the point, it's like, here's what you should be measuring. And here's how you line up against others. So. Yeah, and I, I think that is a, a really sort of um, Im impressive component of the report, I think, is that it does speak both to grassroots and to, you know, higher up in the management chain. And, and that's a little bit unusual. Um, you know, lot, lots of reports, lots of, um, you know, people's opinions and those kinds of things, even if they're full of data and, and those kinds of things, oftentimes speak only to, to sort of one audience. And, and I think the fact that, you know, you, you can use this report to speak to, you know, all up and down the, the reporting chain uh, in, in, in most, if not all organizations, I think speaks really well to the, to the quality. You're so kind. That makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> it's halfway through that I realized, oh my god, that sounds like I'm sucking up. But 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 based on experience, it's 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 a it's a fact. Yep. Well, I'm no, sure I, it's I very, very easy for authenticity. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, I'm sure it's it, it's easy for some to maybe look at it and say, well, that's just a marketing tool by by Puppet. And I think you, I think they've done a really good job of trying to show the data and the methodology is independent. It's this is not puppet spin on the world. This is what we're actually seeing out there. Well, and I, I just feel really obliged to mention again, you know, the Dora folks who we work with, um, Nicole, Jez, and Jean, because this is what they do now. Like, they've become a research and analytics firm. They're, you know, I think filling in the gaps in many ways where some of the big, um, big analyst firms have not necessarily picked up where this movement is going really quickly. And I think benchmarking industries is going to be more and more important. Yeah, yeah, and the the, and also the uh, you know the, the DevOps Enterprise uh, Summit that uh, IT Revolution co-founded with with us at Electric Cloud um, is is also a great conference. I mean, I love that conference because it's a you know it's like a DevOps support group, 
Um, <laughs> hi, my name is Anders. I do DevOps. You know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I was but that's the just, one, which was it, really quite fantastic. And someone made the comment that they were like, "This is the first DevOps event I've been to, where everyone's no one's in a t-shirt." And I think that is a really visceral example of just the impact this is having. Yeah, very, very true. Cool. Well, thank you everybody for joining us today. Uh, that was great that we were all able to kind of. Uh, Share our appreciation for the uh, for the report and for for Puppet for putting it out there. It almost becomes a a case study um, that that a lot of people are able to use rather than just a, about a single customer and coming from a single company. So, thank you so much, Nigel and Dan and Anders for joining us today. No worries. Yeah, thank great. you. That's going to wrap up this week's episode. Just want to give another thank you to all of our guests this week: Anders, Nigel, and Dan. Uh, this was really cool to be able to take an even deeper dive than most get into uh, Puppet's uh, annual State of DevOps report. I cannot recommend enough that you download a copy of the report for yourself if you have not already done so. There are links to access that within the transcript uh, to this podcast that will be published on the SkyTap blog, or the report is also very easy to find online. It really does contain a, um, a great deal of, of valuable information. I uh, want to thank you as well, the listeners, for joining us again. I apologize again for the uh, amount of time it's been since our last episode. We will have many new episodes coming up soon, so be sure and either subscribe uh, to the SkyTap podcast, which you can do on iTunes or SoundCloud, or you can subscribe on the SkyTap blog to find out anytime we publish new material like this and other articles that cover industry topics, everything from uh, cloud development and test, DevOps, and even virtual training as well. So thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you again real soon. 